Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode has been brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th of 2022 in Verona, Italy. This year will be an exclusively in-person edition. The main theme of the event will be all-round wine communication. Tickets are on sale now, so for more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. Hello, everybody. My name is Polly Hammond, and you are listening to Uncorked, the Italian wine podcast series about all things marketing and communication. Join me each week for candid conversations with experts from within and beyond the wine world as we explore what it takes to build a profitable business in today's constantly shifting environment. This week, we're coming to you live from the Wine Industry Impact Conference in a very rainy Bendigo, Australia. My guest is the clever and witty Angus Hewson, a fellow who wears many hats in the wine industry, including writer, critic, publisher, and digital media specialist. Today, we dive into the challenges facing Australian wine and what it's going to take to excel and what we need to know about the coming wine consumer. Let's get into it. I'm going to hit record and I'm going to say this is the first time I've ever gotten to drink while I'm recording a podcast. So that is very lovely. Welcome, Angus. Well, thank you very much for having me. I hear, um, I actually, I recognize on the slides that you're Dr. Angus. I am Dr. Angus. I did a PhD on wine tasting at the University of Sydney. Uh, I completed that in 2003 and I pretty much invented the degree. Was there anything that you learned that we didn't already know? Uh, like all psychology, no. Really, what I found was pretty obvious. <laughs> Essentially, um, uh, what I was looking at, I was looking at whether wine expertise was perceptual or cognitive. So wine expertise, is it based on being a, you know, having amazing uh, perceptual skills and being better than everyone else? Or is it a cognitive information processing skill base? And that's what I found that basically, guess what? Wine experts have more information than novices. Wow, that's some, that's some deep and meaningful research you did there. Four years. Jesus, your brain is big. This, and the Australian government paid me for four years, you know, to study, you know, study this, give wine to first-year students, um, and, and, you know, the first-year students were happy, and so was I. And and where has that taken you? Look, for, it, for the, the benefit of our listeners, what do you do in your, you know, day-to-day life? Look, in my, in my day-to-day life, I am a wine writer, publisher, um, you know, general man about town in terms of Sydney and wine. Um, I, you know, I, I write for the Australian newspaper, the national newspaper. I've been a wine correspondent for 15 years, which I can hardly believe myself, really. Thank you, Rupert. Um, Does that make you one of the few staff writers for wine left? Uh, I I'm not staff. I'm still casual, but okay. but within but within the Australian, there are basically three of us. So there's James Halliday, there's Max Allen, and myself, and and the three of us have been right. I mean, James has obviously been writing for a lot longer than me, but yes, 15 years as a columnist for the Australian and a newspaper and a broadsheet. Who can believe these animals still exist in this world? I want I want to come back to this, but you but you write for basically everyone. So you write for the Australian. Yep. You write for Venice. I do. Yeah, I do. So I, I, I'm a recently been appointed the new Australian editor for Venice, which is uh, extraordinarily exciting, really, in a number of ways. Firstly, 
Australian wine hasn't been that well covered in the global wine media. I mean, it's definitely, I mean, Josh Reynolds did a great job at Venice previously, um, but I think there's when you're in the when you're in the country and you speak to the people and, and you you know every day I just think that that gives it I guess a different kind of a, a different view on it so it's look it's exciting for me in terms of it's a you know it's a great platform it's a platform I've been a fan of for many years and I, I think they the way that Venice goes into wine in depth and regions in depth I think you know what it's actually exactly as you as the conference we're at right now Polly you know, yeah, we, where the hell are we? Yeah, we about we're recording live. Yeah, I, I don't get to do this that often. No, no. So, but we know, we know. You know, we've been at this conference for two days, and we basically been saying Australian wine has some challenges, and in the export market, there's actually not that much knowledge about Australian wine. And you know, I'm really looking forward to you know, essentially, you know, using that business platform to tell all these amazing stories for this you know our wine industry started in the 1800s it's been going for 200 years really and in and out phylloxera wasn't ideal but it wasn't ideal for everybody but we have this amazing wine history in this country um you know penfolds and torbrick and all those guys they do great things but there's so much more going on and i am so looking forward to using venice to spreading the biblical words of Australian wine. That's really interesting because, of course, you know, and I do want to come back to some of the other things that you're working on, on publishing and writing, but understanding that we're speaking to so many different audiences and having to tailor what we're saying to our different audiences. Is that just a natural skill of someone who's a writer or is that something that you had to learn to be like, okay, who is my audience in this space? How am I going to convey it to them? What sort of language and presentation do I use between, you know, say Venice and the Australian or moving forward to wine pilot with what yeah. you're doing with that. Uh, look, I, I think I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky in that, you know, I'd learnt wine, right. Well, I learned to write as a doctoral student and that, that is a, you know, that, you know, there's a discipline there and that, and you know, my first wine writing was the most horrendous wine writing you've ever seen because it sounded like I was an academic and at the time I was, but, um, writing for four years every day teaches you to be a better writer. And then over time, I've morphed that into really different places. I've also, I've had a, I've had a history of startup e-commerce retailers. I've, mm-hmm. I've been involved in that kind of thing. I've probably written more spam in Australia than any other man. So I've, 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 I've everyone's I've, turning off. Don't say that. No, no, but I've, 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 I have been involved in the retail industry as well for a long time at, at various parts, at a premium level, at a, you know, at an everyday level. So I've written it. I've written a hell of a lot of words for for an, for different audiences, and you know my PhD is actually in psychology, so it's in the school of psychology. So my I have psych training, and I I think I bring that to what I do in terms of writing is is an understanding that we're all different species, and we're all in different places, and um, and people respond to different nuances of language. And I think over time, fifteen years writing for the Australian a monthly column too, you you learn to to you know look after your audience and and I've always really tried so hard to because I think sometimes in wine writing we talk about terroir too much and hills and slopes and mellow and blah 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 we talk about all that stuff but when I write I really am out looking to you know tell the truth and be honest but also how can I make this wine or this place sound as sexy as possible how can I entertain whoever it may be whether it's for the Australian newspaper which is an 
old male white guy in Sydney <laughs> or around the world potentially who's interested in Australia? Is it writing for Venice, who's a you know who's a high end collector, or you know is it writing for like Gourmet Traveller Wine Australia, which is a you know which is a more you know kind of traditional summer summer kind of love wine, but summer getting into wine. So how do you change the language for those people? Okay, so I'm going to ask you the question I ask all wine writers who've been at it for a really long time. Um, how much now do you have to pay attention to things like SEO and traffic and bounce rates and time on site? And, and, and are you ever expected to perform to meet, you know, those requirements? No. In, 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 uh, maybe it's in, in any publication I've worked for. I've, you know, the words have never been questioned about what I've written and there's never been a, a concept about it needs to be digitally appropriate or anything like that. That could be Australia. It could be because we're at the end of the world and we absolutely are. But but there is not a, there's, for, for us here at least, it's always been content first essentially. Right, right. Well, that's, that's good. Good on you that you can do that. I don't get that answer from everyone. Okay, so moving on, you've got Wine Pilot, yep. which services Australia and New Zealand. That's right. And everybody knows that in my heart, I'm a Kiwi, despite the accent. <laughs> um, okay, so kick it down for me. What is Wine Pilot? What are we doing? Look, Wine, look, wine Pilot is all about, um, you know, in Australia, we have just a, you know, we have, and New Zealand, we have a, just a fantastic a range, you know, range of wines. And I've always felt that, you know, wine writing and the, and the things I do for like Venice and the Australia and that talks to collectors and that term talks to high-end consumers but there's a hell of a lot of other people who want to know about wine who they're interested in wine but they want them to speak to people to speak to them in their own language so wine pilot we it's actually or it's almost a co-op it's almost a collective of wine writers so I've, I've brought together maybe a dozen different wine writers some are really established and they've written for newspapers and they're traditional guys and girls and some of them are just new cool sommeliers who have whip tongues who make wine sound really sexy and i just i just bring all those people together and each person gets to you know, really have their own take on wine and talk about wine in their own way. Okay, so that's really interesting. If we go back to the retail and the e-commerce, something that we have talked about for years that's so hard to ever get uptake on is this notion that retailers or e-commerce um, sellers would have their own in-house tasting panels. And I always equate it to like when you would go into Borders or Barnes and Noble and there, there would be the staff recommendations. And what would happen is, you know, my goal for it would be that your buyers would develop a natural affinity. It's the equivalent of having your favorite people who work in wine shops, right? Absolutely. Nobody will do it. So are, are you seeing or are you expecting that your readers will realize my taste align with, you know, writer A, and so I'm going to have a lot of faith in them, and they're really, I'm, I'm hitching my purchases to their recommendations. Absolutely. So here's a nice statistic for you. 8% of our DNA is locked up in our, in our olfactory perception. So I want you to think about what that means. That Everybody's basically means- smelling things now. <laughs> but, but literally- you know, because of, and this is this is going back to when you know when we were apes. Essentially, is that smell was a really important, really important thing about is the tiger coming and the lion coming? It's time to run. So, smell is a really important part of of our DNA. But also, what it means is there's massive individual differences 
in smell. One person's, you know, one person's Pinot Grigio is another person's Barolo. Mm. Okay, so we we actually all have very different tastes, and you're exactly right. It relates to, you know, the psychology of taste. Part of what I'm trying to do is for people to find a palate that resonates with them. It could be some 20 year old sommelier who's not done WCT, doesn't want to be an MW, thinks it's all crap, not interested in that, but loves bright, fresh, you know, you know, Beaujolais, stalky styles. You know, fantastic. You know, those wines that, you know, can be fantastic as well. But then also I've got, you know, some old blokes who write for me who like big Barossa Shiraz, 15% alcohol, lots of oak and lots of fruit. There's nothing wrong with those wines either. But yes, exactly. I I it's democratizing the wine media in a way and just providing you know a you know a wide source of you know of of different opinions sometimes there sometimes i get a winery sending a wine to like five five of us and oh, so and, and 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 saying hey what do all these different people think do you publish all of them or do you pick one no no we publish them all Oh, that would be fascinating to really, you yeah. know, like your flight yeah. uh, of the reviews and, my, and really see how different people taste. And I guess it's a little bit controversial, but I guess, you know, we've traditionally, I guess, relied on that, you know, there is a definitive score for a wine, okay, that each score has a dyed-in-the-wall score that is completely objective. And Does you know, anyone believe that? Pardon? I think, I think a lot of consumers do. I think a lot of consumers do, but I, I believe that we all have different palates and we see wines in different ways and we should we should democratize that. We should we should absolutely let's be honest, there are collectors out there who just want the top end stuff, which are, you know, if they're Australian Cabernet, they want it to look like Poyak. Mm-hmm. They want it to look like Saint Estef, they want it to look like, you know, Napa Bench. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, we can do that. You know, you know, I've got a you know, Andrew Kayard works with me, master of wine. He's a, you know, you know, real Bordeaux expert in Australia, the Bordeaux expert in Australia. And we talk about, absolutely, we have classic wines. Um, but I, I think also sometimes we judge, you know, and I'm 10 years in the MW program and mm. WSET and that kind of thing. So I'm, you know, well indoctrinated in that kind of thing. But at the same time, I think a, a, a Cabernet, for example, traditionally they would be judged against classic claret styles okay you know, or, or montebello ridge you know that kind of thing um there can be lovely brighter fresher cabernets they may not have the structure but they drink beautifully and i think it's worth appreciating that a wine doesn't need to be have longevity and structure to be a highly scoring delicious experience right so we are at the i'm gonna i always want to say wisa do they do a wisa or wisa we we, we, we you do. know you know what you we do like with our, vi- with our vowels yeah it's definitely wiser it's wiser so we're here um in victoria at the wiser conference we're, do, we're not just and- in victoria we are in the historic town of bendigo we are in bendigo where i have learned that allergies are the biggest um, <laughs> takeaway. So you gave a presentation yesterday, and, and this just ties into what you're talking about with sort of our perception of what wines are supposed to be. You did a presentation uh, about change is not a dirty word. Yeah. Uh, and actually addressing some of the ways that maybe we have been less adoptive of yep. change yep. in the wine world. Absolutely. Um, it, it was interesting to me. So it, certainly I'd be happy for you to talk about any of those key topics. But what, what I found really interesting sitting in the audience 
is the extent to which the themes at this conference and at conferences, you know, whether they're virtual or um, in real life in the past year have changed. You know, we used to, nobody talked about digital. I just remember rocking up and being like the only person I'm going to talk to you about digital and you're all going to hate me. Um, what were some of the, the things that you felt in terms of key themes, like really carried from one to the next for the speakers in the room? Look, I, I think that just, to, I'm just going to provide some background because it may not be, aware, not all listeners may be aware of, but Australian wine has some really big clouds on the horizon, okay? So China, about 18 months ago, put tariffs on Australian wine that basically made most Australian wine unsaleable in China. China was the biggest market in Australia. How big? China was equal to the US. Mm-hmm. We actually saw well, those numbers. I haven't, I haven't even stopped. Oh, God. I haven't even finished. The US plus the UK plus Canada plus New Zealand plus the next three or four markets. Okay. So China in itself in, val- in value was equal to Australia's eight of next top markets. Okay. So suddenly we got a little problem. We got a heap of wine. Um... We have some of it is actually very good wine. Some of it has been some of it is you know, let's call it jug wine would be would be the appropriate term. Um, we have and the, the retail value of that is like literally billions of dollars of spare wine. Okay, so we have that. We have climate change. I mean, I live in Sydney and it seems like it's rained for like the last two years. Um, so we have we have climate. We have a significant climate change. We have the logistics issues. One thing that a lot of people, you know, people know that there are logistics issues. This is a hugely pertinent problem for the Australian wine industry. I understand it's particularly bad for this region. Correct. Well, it's it's, it's bad for the whole country. Okay. Because we sell, you know, a lot of our wine obviously goes to the Americas and it goes to the UK. I know of UK, I know of UK distributors who told me about three months ago, so we're talking about, you know, June, July, they said, we will not buy any more Australian wine this year. And these are significant importers of Australian wine that said they will not buy Australian wine again this year. It's nothing to do with quality, it's to do with they have promotional schemes, they need to know when a wine's going to arrive, they need to know the cost of the delivery of that wine. And at the moment in the UK, they can't guarantee it. And if you're a UK importer, you can just get a truck and you can go to Calais and you can go visit your wineries in Bordeaux, Burgundy, the Rhone, and and you lower the risk. So Australia's advantage in many ways globally, historically has been that we are at the end of the world and it's kept problems away from us. But right now there is a there is a there some challenges. The You know, on the flip side, Australia's actually making the better, best wines it's ever had. And it's making some fantastic wines, all different styles. We're not just big, heavy Bross and Shiraz anymore, you know, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. But we are making the classiest wines, like if I could say to, you know, if I'm talking to people, Australian Chardonnay against, you know, the great Chardonnays of the world, we are up there in quality and we are half or a third of the price. Right. Like the value is crazy. Anyway. I've I've gone I've gone a little bit off piece. No, 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 no. You have But uh, but I just wanted to. I'm going to pour more wine. Yeah, no, good plan. Nebbiolo from the Pyrenees. Who knew? Um, We're having a Sub Rosa 2018. There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we are. I met the winemaker. She's charming. So her husband's the winemaker. That's true. Excuse me. Um. So yeah. So so the the conference really was about you know there's a lot of people here who are thinking, okay, 
Um, I need to do something different. Really, to be honest, thank you very much. Um, they, the, you know, the locals, they, they've, they've come here because they want to learn something, because they need to learn something. And I guess you really the major thing has been about, um, firstly, um, you know, embracing change and innovation. How does, you know, I think, you know, being being an Australian winemaker, we we've been quite lucky for a long for a long period of time. You know, we we sell our wine you know, at relatively good prices and, you know, the industry has been quite buoyant and China obviously really over a decade has just been, you know, a bit of a gold mine for a lot of people. So think things have been good and, and you know, potentially local wine companies and certainly not all of them, but certainly some of them got a bit lazy. There's a big cash cow there. There's, there, yeah. was a big, there was a big, there was a big cash dragon actually would be a better way to say it, you know, north and, and, and a lot of people, rather than going, okay, I'm going to play around with a three-tier system in the US, you know, I'm going to go to the system Bolliget, I'm going to go to the LCBO, I'm going to, you know, jump through those hoops, you know, and a lot of, you know, wine industry has been doing this for, you know, ad infinitum for, you know, thousands of years probably. They went for kind of the, the low-hanging fruit and China was the low-hanging fruit, um, but that's now fallen off. But what that meant is for a long time, people necessarily, there was no need to innovate, there was no need for them to really think. Okay, what are the what are the what's the what are the diversification strategies? What do I need to do to to retain my relevance? Do I need to? And so, you know, there's that's that's kind of gone on. Um, and at the same time, this country we've got you know huge changes in terms of Gen Y coming through and millennials coming through. Which well, actually, thing. that was something that you talked about that, that I I thought was fabulous was the changing nation of or the, the changing notion of our ethnic diversity yep. and the impact that that has on wines for yep. generation australians who grow up in for instance muslim homes where Absolutely. alcohol is just not a part of their yeah culture. and australia we are we have you know australia is has always been a home of immigrants we've we've you know i'm my father's scottish for example so we're you know we are a country of immigrants you know as some people may not want to admit that but we we are a country of immigrants but we have the interesting thing is in australia so the, the statistics are uh 46 percent of children in australia have a parent who is born overseas so 40, 46% of children currently under 18-year-olds has at least one parent born overseas. And of that, two-thirds come from countries which are not traditional wine-drinking companies. The rest are English, clearly. My lovely English wife, so my children kind of come into that. Um, hello, Abigail. God, yeah, I just realised you're a part of that. I know, well. I am, I am, I know. Um, but literally two-thirds from countries such as India, mm -hmm. China, Indonesia. I mean, it's actually one of the great strengths of Australia is actually our um, how we've been very accepting of immigrants and how what a fantastic we we wouldn't be half the nation without them to be honest. But there is this huge demographic change that the wine industry, because the wine industry is based largely in regional towns, you know, where, which are still extraordinarily Anglo-Saxon and European. I think a lot of the wine trade don't know that they don't know that you can go to you know, the, one of the second biggest suburb in Sydney, Parramatta, which I spent a bit of time in, and I can walk down the street in Parramatta on a Friday night, and I am literally the only white guy. So you mentioned India, so I want to talk about India. Yep. We had a couple presentations yep. that, that did reference the Indian market, and I guess my concern, although obviously tariffs are, are enormous, there are, there are huge, huge economic hurdles to jump there. Yep. 
Do you think that the lesson with China is going to stick in such a way that we're not going to just next pin all of our hopes on what we're hearing about the growing Indian wine market? I, the Australians will not do that because the opportunity just is not there yet. Okay. Basically, the tariffs are very high. Um, you know, obviously, you know, the religious, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a huge amount of people in India who who are not going to drink wine. Spirits has a home ground advantage there like mm-hmm. you. I can't – what that graph, what was it, 5% of alcohol's wine in India? I honestly don't I think it was, but it's something like that. So it's tiny. I'm certain that Robin will have the the yeah, yeah, yeah. The slides. Absolutely. But, but it's a small – look, there will be some misguided Australian wineries, so I think we'll put a lot of hope into India. But the tariffs are very large. The cultural issues are very large. China, you know – and, and I think China, it became very clear 10 years ago that, you know, following Western culture, you know, of, you know, was very important and brands were very important and that mm. kind of thing. I get the feeling that India is a much more complex market mm. that um, the, the Indian, yeah, there will be some of that, but. It, but well, you don't think that it'll this just is, be like a shift? No, like, okay, no, no, no. Last China, we're going to it, This is a 20-year game. Okay. China is literally a 20-year game for Australia. Okay. Okay. So we sit here. And now, disclosure, you and I were both presenters at this conference. Um, I, I don't actually know if the things that we heard and we took away are going to be the same as what the producers. I'm not a wine producer. You know, if you had to pause it, what do you think that the producers in the room took away? I think probably, um, I mean, we're in regional Victoria. So mm-hmm. we, we, this is not a conference where we got a lot of capital city people and, and all that kind of thing. And I think there's a, there's a good amount of that, but there's a lot of kind of locals, I think. I think hopefully, Polly, I, I hope that we manage to get across to people. They need to think about things a bit more. They, they, they need to just have a think about who their markets are and who they want to connect with and, and that there are tools out there to do so. Hopefully they don't feel so helpless. I get I get a feeling that that when you're a small winery owner and you're in like a region such as Heathcote, which is a fantastic Shiraz region, like just does epic Shiraz. But, um, you know, those people, they don't talk digital. They don't talk our language. They don't know what Google Analytics is. They don't know what Slack is. I know. I referenced that. I love Slack. It was great. I referenced that in a, in a What did everyone look like? Did, 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 did. It was just like stunned Mullet. <laughs> but, but actually, you know, what was interesting to me um, was I had had to kind of do my research. So one of the things that bugs me about conferences, I can say this to you because you're Australian, is when you rock up to a conference and people have brought the data from the wrong nations with them. Yep. And I, I tried really hard as the American Kiwi in the room not to do that. Um, but also... Things like Slack, I don't think of that as a Something new. uniquely, no. you know, cultural uh, American no. thing. Um, and maybe my hope is that one person will go home and they'll look up Slack and they'll look up Notion and they'll be like, ooh, there's affinities in, in Google, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, anyway, where I was going with this was I had actually reached out to some friends and I kind of looked up some information on this audience and I was told and then became aware of it here as as well that they are switched on i don't I, you know i've been to big international conferences where i did not have full rooms and engaged audiences the way that i did here and and to me 
that made such a difference because I was like, Jesus, these people, they actually want to hear what I'm saying. It's not a room full of presenters who are all like, I already know what's what's being said. And that is that's both gratifying to my ego, but it, it also says to me that there are a lot of people that maybe we undervalue how much they want to learn yep. and know about growing a brand. And in, in Australia, we have a huge amount of small wineries. We have a huge, yeah. we have thousands of under probably 2,000 case wineries. In this area, I think we've got more than, than yeah. yeah. We have them all over. <laughs> and I think that what that means is people are more attentive because this is their homes. Mm. This is their, these are not a corporate types. These mm. are not people who think they've got a job and they'll be like, oh, I'd sell wine. I might sell sh- washing powder next year. I'm, right. Go work for Unilever. I'll, you know, it's not, it's not that corporate type. Yeah. They are, we are by and large, and obviously, you know, companies like Treasury are well known and Accolade are well known, that kind of thing, and, and Yellowtail and that kind of thing. And people talk about those. They are, you know, three companies. Yeah. There are 4,000 wineries in this country. And most of them are literally, you know, mum and dad or family. Absolutely. So these people, they know that um, that there are challenges coming. And a really important thing about the China thing, which we've seen this before in Australia, we are boom and bust in the wine trade. Literally, the, it, there are examples of it in the 1880s where it's happened. So this is this has actually happened before, interestingly enough. Um, but the thing about that, you know, that boom and bust is, you know, the wine trade, you know, constantly it, it it we have oversupply and we have undersupply, and that's and that's just what happens. And and wineries kind of live and die by that. But I think you know, we the people when it when it when it's your family home, when it's something you've put your emotional capital in, your blood, sweat, and tears, mm. you are you will do what you you will you are forced actually to to consider all options here. So I can't speak for the Aussies, but, um, and I was so excited to get a picture of number eight wire in one of my slides today. Kiwis are good problem solvers. We're so good at being like, right, we've got no money, you know, oily rag, but we're going to figure out how to do this. And, And I think that that was probably what I was getting a lot of today. And the other thing I do just kind of want to give a huge shout out to this. There was no pomp. There was none of that bullshittery that we get in so many of our events where, you know, you've got the posturing and just the whole thing. So massive, massive shout out. I felt very at home um, at this conference. Can I I talk about Kiwis? Oh, sure. As long as it's nice. No, no, it's absolutely. They, you know, they are industrious. And you kind of alluded to it. Oh yeah. And and in Australia, we we've you know we can't, we've had the Olympics. You know, we won the America's Cup. You know, we've got a we we got. Oh, sh- get in line on that America's yeah, yeah, Cup. Yeah, yeah, thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's no, true. Yeah. But you know, we got we got more iron ore than we know what to do with. So mm-hmm. there's a there's a certain kind of confidence with Australians, potentially too much confidence at times. And I I'm sure our listeners will probably chuckle when they when they hear a, a local saying that. But there's there's definitely some of that. The Kiwis know to get ahead. They got to work hard. They can't. They can't live on a billion tons of iron ore. Mm. They can't live on a you know a trillion tons of coal. They if they want they they know they're a small country. They know they're tiny. They know that they're not insignificant. They but they know to get ahead. They need to work hard. We're the underdogs. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting in Australia. We actually have that as well. 
Western Australia is the same. Really? WA is the same because they oh. Perth is a small city yeah. and they, they know that the East Coast in Australia is where you want to sell wine. You want to be in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. So they know they need to market. They know they need to try hard and they do. And I think that's, there's a, you know, Western Australia really in terms of its volume punches very highly 100%. in the premium wine and, you know, in the premium wine stakes. Um, just wrote a lovely article for Venus on uh, Margaret River, should anyone be interested. Um, is that published? Yes, of course it is. And um, But they, they do really well and the Kiwis, they do really well. I mean, there's there's a – do you want to talk about NOLO? Are you in, sure. Is, is NOLO – are we going to get anything well, thrown at us? was an actual – it was a key theme. It was a key theme. NOLO came up across yeah. the board. All yeah. right, go for it. Okay, so so NOLO's, you know, NOLO's a fascinating category. So, um, you know, I, I actually, my the business, Wine Pilot, we did the first zero alcohol wine show. We just, I got a did whole bunch you? of cool judges together and we did a zero alcohol wine show. And, um, and, and, you know, why did I do it? Do I love these wines? Would I rather, you know, drink Latash or NOLO? You know, I'm pretty sure I'm in the Latash camp. But, but, but wine shows, interestingly, wine shows in Australia were set up to better the breed. They were set up for producers to show wines to people who were professionals to give them advice and to benchmark so they could improve. It was all about improving the breed. And, and you know, that's where no low is. You know, no low is absolutely needs some improvement in the breed. And that's, and that's absolutely fine. But, um, Basically, I in Australia, and I don't. I think the US is. I know Nolo is actually going nuts in the US. It's going crazy. But I. But basically, in Australia, it's likely by 2030, one in ten bottles of wine sold in the country will be Nolo. And I know. And I. You know. I'm not sure whether I can probably disclose this. I know a very large company. Actually, not that large a company. I know a decent sized company, who exports a lot of wine to America who in a in a year or two they will have no there will be a higher volume of of no and low alcohol wine than they will sell than standard table wine and that's a that's a significantly sized brand too that's not some that's not some tiny winery okay and that's so, in the US that's in the US market. so i have a question about this cuz i i saw that you referenced that in your slides how does that compare to the amount of no and low alcohol spirits Look, I have a reason for asking. Yeah, yeah. So I reckon. Look, I mean, look. In Australia, the interesting thing is, you know, we're we're a beer nation. You know, really, up until quite recently. So I remember watching, you know, low alcohol beer ads, twenty five years ago mm. on the television, uh, and the, so the beer industry started investing in this 25 years ago and now the zero beers and there are some zero beers out in Australia and I'm sure in the States as well that are absolutely fantastic and delicious drinks without alcohol so beer's done very well the no look I can't understand drinking a, a no alcohol beer uh, look it's not it's not for sorry, me sorry just to go off on a no, tangent no, it's I, don't, a, I don't like carbs that much no no but I tell you what it's it interests me from a perception basis in terms of as a chilled beverage it has an it has a you know a you know a yeast, a multi taste. Okay. It's bright. It's fresh. It's refreshing, without the booze. It's become no low is doing. I mean, low alcohol beer is doing unbelievably well in Australia now. Typically, you can go to a barbecue where typically you'd have a big bunch of footy guys. That's football for those people overseas, and you'd have a bun, big bunch of footy guys who'd normally be like 
smashing, you know, beef and, you know, about 20 beers each. And you can see these and sometimes, you know, and, they, and you know, they spend about 40 hours in the gym a week. And these days they turn up to a barbecue with a case of... Good on them. Zero alcohol beer. And, and literally I'm, I'm gobsmacked by that, but, it, but it, it's a fantastic thing to see mm. at the same time. But I think that the technology and the production is different mm. for beer. So spirits. So, so no lie spirits. Okay, so I'll tell you why I'm asking yep. this. Um, Do you know Liars? Have you seen the Liars stuff? I think I've had Liars. Yeah, so Liars is a is a yeah. local one that's doing that's it's doing international export these days. Yeah, yes, yeah, doing really yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Um, the reason I ask is that what you get with no and low out spirits is the mix experience. You yep. get the Stanley Tucci making your Negroni kind of thing. Whereas with, I mean, one of the big issues with wine is we open to 750. We have to drink all of it. You know, we don't have to drink all of it. Um, but you know, there's no Ikea effect. And what I'm really wondering is does the Ikea effect of the no and low out, the ability that I'm still going to go through the process of making my cocktail jump some of the obstacles to adopting no and low alk. So um, so if anybody has that answer, they yeah. can leave a message in I'm, the comments. I mean, I think I, I would suggest that at a, at a cocktail level that, you know, those mixed drinks, because often the mix is what mm. the flavor is from, mm -hmm. basically they can taste very close to the real thing in, in spirits, mm. less so in wine, I think. But there are... I mean, and not to, you know, I may get stoned next time I'm, you know, next time I go into an Australian winery, but really um, the New Zealanders... They don't listen to this, you're New, okay. New Zealanders doing really well. Kiwis. So basically... Well, there was a lot of... Research. A lot of and research, cash. a lot of money, a yep. lot of effort. Correct. And and it is a thing... Um, so Sean Spratt talked about find the thing that you can be the only person. This yeah, is yeah. such a, you know, not that this is where he's coming from, but this is a real American thing as well. Find that thing where you can be, I'm the only person who does this, right? And I think that New Zealand really set out to say early on, we're going to lead this on, on the lighter Alps. Yep. Um, okay, so we've, we've completely gotten off track. Yeah. Back to writing, publishing, wine, and what we've seen here. Um, one of the things, you and I were out to dinner, one of the things that interests me is that you said print is not dead. That's right. That's right. Convince me. Okay. So I think that people still buy books. People still buy books, people still buy magazines, people are still interested in print. I think we need to appreciate that um, it's kind of like wine for a different meal kind of thing and for a different consumer. So I'm like, I am, and with my, you know, um, you know, partner, Andrew Kayard, Master of Wine, um, we are bringing out a Christmas book, which is like just, it's like a combination of all the stuff that this we've year. done this year. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay. But it's a combination of all the stuff that we've tasted this year. It includes Andrew's like on premiere tasting in, you know, in Bordeaux, Margaret River trip, Barossa trip, you know, some cool stuff we've seen, a bit of Andrew's history stuff, just all wrapped up. And it's- Is that the first year you've done that? Yes, it is. It is. But I think the thing about it is, and I don't know what book publishing is like, so much in the US in terms of wine books, but in Australia, we've done a lot of guides. Mm -hmm. We've done a lot of points. We've done a lot of technical tasting notes. You know, they've got a spot, you know, we, we make some cash, you know, all of us all of us have done it for a long time. There's a consumer base that want that. Hey, that's absolutely okay. But I am deadly talking to people. I am so sure that 
there's a lot of people who they just want more and the wine media you know i think i think Venice does a, does a good job at that but but a lot of the wine media just delivers pretty basic content it delivers you know it's it's very um you know it's just basic it's just here's my points and here's some words and go buy some and wine and so by basic you mean boring. well i yeah it's not it's it's all right look I bought those books years ago and I learned a hell of a lot about wine. Dude, doing... I, I have dozens of, of course. them. I just paid to ship them from New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. So Jesus yeah. is big and heavy. We've done, yeah, look, we've done that. But wine has all these beautiful stories to tell. Wine has just, we are so lucky to be in this category where we're not making shit up. We are telling 100-year family stories yeah. of death and destruction sometimes that have turned into miraculous things. I mean, you know, I'm going to yellowtail. And I know it's, I can see people squinting. I reference yellowtail good, all good, the good. time in, in marketing good. and advertising. But, but, you know, John Casella's family, they came to Australia with nothing. They literally came to Australia as, as poor Italian immigrants with nothing. The family needed to get in a ute which is a utility truck. Is, it, is that, that what we call it? What's that? SUV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. SUV. Yeah, yeah. SUV. SUV. They basically had to get in a car and travel for nine months of the year to follow the fruit picking mm -hmm. because they didn't have enough money on their farm to do anything with it. Okay? They did that for a long period of time. So these are, you know, really people, new Australians, you know, who really struggled. And then, you know, they planted some vines, started a little business, grew a little bit, grew a little bit, grew a little bit. And then they saw the big opportunity. They saw, hey, you know, America, we can, Australia, because we are, you know, we have this great sunshine in parts of Australia that, that we can that we can create good value jug wines. They're jug wines. There's no aspirations to do anything more than that, but just good solid jug wines at a, at a good price. And they pursued that for year after year after year. I can't remember if it was the fifth iteration or the sixth iteration, they finally got someone to take them on. And they, you know, and they've done extraordinarily well. And they are, and John Casella is a lovely man. He's a lovely man who worked literally for a decade to get it off the ground. And he, and he came up with the right label and he got the right distributor on board. And the interesting thing is Australian corporates kind of increased their price of their wines. They got a bit greedy. They were like, hey, we're, we're Aussies, you know, we're, we're going to smash it. Oi, the, oi, oi. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just like that. And they basically said, hey, we can do this. We're going we're gonna to make more money and still give people, you know, okay wine. And John just went in with a lower price. He went in with a lower price when, when all the other people just went too high. They got, um, I think, Deutscher on board and the rest is history. And, um, you know, in, in Australia and, and I'm sure around the world, a lot of people will make fun of that brand. I'm a massive fan of that brand. John Casella crushes 10% of Australia's wine. 10% of Australia's wine and, and he um, recently acquired uh, Peter Lehman Wines and from the Hess and um, he pays, he paid the growers a lot more than they were getting before. So the growers who were there, he could have kept them on the same price, he increased the fruit price. So he, he's, a, he's, he's been a grower. He's been a grower, he understands the, the logistics he understands the challenges and he looks after his growers and the river, you know, the river arena and the riverland and these inland regions without someone like John Casella would be um, very challenged. Here, here.
Yeah. I don't know. It's a very, I know talking about. No, 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 no. I, I mean, I, I actually, I'm cognizant of the fact that we're at 42 minutes and we could do a whole episode on why do we vilify the people who actually make our industry work. Um, I, it's something I'm very vocal about. I was really, really lucky. So when I did my one business studies, I did it under Tim Hanai. And he, you know, one of the first things he said is, is such a feat of winemaking to make a consistent price. Yeah. Uh, consistent wine at a consistent price point year on year on year on year. And, and I have been enormously grateful that that was kind of my introduction to wine business because I think it's really easy to fall into the trap of, oh, you know, the the vintage varietal. Montrachet. I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I have I have huge respect and I also see the way that those brands break down barriers that my clients, so I work with independents, my clients couldn't do some of the things that they do where they're not the, the people with the money and the power and the voice leading the way on that. So you're not ever gonna hear me fillet big brands. What's, what's the average price of a bottle of wine in the US at the moment? I don't actually know. Would be a tenner or something like that, wouldn't it? Well, I know that the US, don't they have the, the $8 cap? on sort of like cheap wine stops at eight dollars and then it becomes i i, I really but i, really I guess the, the point my the point i want to make is that let's say it's let's say i don't know what yellowtail's price is it might be eight dollars or nine dollars yeah. something like that average price is like about that so yeah. basically and remember if average price is there then 50 percent of the wine in the country is sold Bingo. below that so they're actually hitting the heart of the market they're hitting the heart of the market so they're actually the people that are the best at delivering, you know, delivering yeah. what the consumer wants. So it's so funny because um, a lot of my clients, they, they struggle with budgets around marketing research, market research, you know, branding, labeling, so many decisions. And I often will say to them, you don't have the money. That's fine. But you have a car. You can drive to the liquor store. You can look at what all the brands who've had the money have done. You know, why was there a year, I remember this in beer, when like every beer box changed their color to green. I'm like, they've done a lot more market research than we have. We need to actually look at some of what they're doing and ask ourselves why and, and, and you know, assume that there's a reason behind it. Something like Yellowtail, I've often referenced their, um, they did like a be happy uh, Super Bowl ad. This was seven yeah, years yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of the most brilliant wine ads I've ever seen because there's not one mention of buy our wine, we are Yellowtail anywhere in it. There's a bottle of Yellowtail in settings of real life. Yeah. And you know what? Learn from that. Do yeah. better. We don't have to pay for all the market research that created those ads if we can actually watch yeah. what some of the big guns are doing. Yeah. So anyway. Back to print, what I find interesting about this, I just absolutely filleted the notion of generational marketing. So I'm going to back Which I, which I, to be honest, I love that. I really, yes. I just thought that was a great, great preso. That's, um, that's research that's happened in the past yep. sort of three years. So that was really nice about that. Anyway, um, interestingly enough though, print, what we are seeing is a rise in print adoption from younger audiences Absolutely. so there we go generational marketing uh talk to me about your gigantic the bible the bible actually we shouldn't we shouldn't call that the australian arc is what it's called so um i am 
uh, I work with a, a gentleman by the name of Andrew Kayard. Mm. Andrew Kayard was third master of wine in Australia, and uh, he is, you know, a bit of a wine Jedi. Really, to be honest, like God, he's, you dropped a Star Wars reference on my podcast. I, I know, I know, I know. I knew you'd like that. Actually, he's more Han Solo. He's more shit from the hip. Actually, he's more a wine Han Solo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but Andrew's Andrew has a interestingly. So he's he's English born, um, but his mother is Australian, and his mother comes from a very famous family who actually were one of the largest wineries in Australia a hundred years ago. Really? In, yeah, Ranella. There's a t- the, t- the, the area just south of Adelaide called Ranella. They're from the Ranell family. Mm. So he's got this he's got this immense history in Australian wine. He moved over here in uh, I think it was 82, 1982 to study it and stayed ever since kind of thing. Um, MW founded Langton's, which is a very famous wine auction house. Um, you know, he's done done amazing things. He's written about ten books. Anyway, so Andrew's he's he's you know he's and he's can paint as well. So he's a he's, a, he's a Renaissance man. I'm just I know. Feel I know. No, no, it is. Anyway, so 2005, Andrew started writing just some little historic anecdotes about Australian wine. Just some little pieces. Wait, what for, year was that? Uh, oh, sorry, 2005. 2005. 2005. Cheeky 17 years ago. Mm. So he started writing these little historic anecdotes and he wrote some and then he kind of stopped. And he stopped till about 2015 and then just really got into it. And he got into it and he got into it. And then he, we end up with 330,000 words of content of the history of wine. So think about digital and you Ages were, is that. but it's we're looking at twelve hundred. So, but think, but think about you know, <coughs> you and I are digital evangelists in a way. Um, digital has been amazing for research. So through Trove, you know, in Australia, yeah. basically he searched every single newspaper, every mention of wine in every newspaper that's ever existed in the whole country, and every publication. This might be a little obsessive. It is, but basically, so we got to uh, basically. He, he wrote this book and we met up, actually. We had this, there was an anniversary dinner. Now I'm going to drop some big wine words. Oh, damn. Um, so uh, last year, I think it was July last year, Andrew and I and a whole bunch of Australian wine writers were invited to Penfolds to, to their lovely winery in McGill for what would have been the 70th anniversary of Grange. Okay, mm-hmm. so 1951 Grange. Was, was the first vintage. We were invited for the 70th anniversary. And Andrew and I only just made it because Sydney was about to lock down in COVID and half of Sydney had literally, but this was like the 70th anniversary of Grange. This was like go to dinner and drink like 20 vintages of Penfolds mm. Grange. So mm-hmm. it really wasn't something we wanted to miss. Mm. Um, there, someone had COVID in my suburb that morning. And you lied. No, 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 <laughs> I, no it was fine. But half of Sydney, so how, all the most of the wine roads for Sydney couldn't come because they came from the wrong side because they, they'd only cut off half the city at that time. Andrew and I just got out. They closed the airports like the next day. Like, fuck it, we're gone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no, we, it was the booking. We, yeah. But we got in there, we flew in, and then I got to Adelaide Airport, and they're like, uh, and they looked at, and they're like, they looked at my ID, and they looked at my suburb, and they're like, you're category three. And I'm like, what does that mean? They go, uh, you just need to go over there. Can you go over in the corner? And I'm like, the only guy from category three. And basically, it's like, someone's just been got COVID in your suburb. You're going to have to test, and, uh, you know, we're just going to have to wait to see what happens. And so I, I sat in the airport. 
and I got tested and I'm like, thinking, oh, this is gonna be the, the best Grange dinner ever. I'm gonna miss it. And then, you know, halfway through the afternoon, clean bill of health, I'm, on, I'm in the cab, it's Grange time. Anyway, so, so Andrew and I took, I was, so Andrew and I talking at this dinner, about half the people were there because most people got locked out. But um, we're talking at this dinner and he said- Twice as much wine for you. Yeah, exactly, it wasn't all bad news. And um, we basically, he told me about this book. He said, look, Angus, I've been writing this book and um, and no one wants it kind of thing. So public, it's it kind of spoke to some publishers. And But this is, look, this is middle 2001. Mm-hmm. So COVID world's happening. People don't know if bookstores are ever going to open again. Like, let's be honest. So publishers are gun shy and there's no problem with that. So Andrew and I, you know, he kind of says, look, I've got this book I've written. I'll just, I'll just share it with you. And I'm like, yeah, cool. Just share it with me. And we look at the Google Doc and I'm like, fuck me. Jesus, I'm going to have to edit this. No, yeah, yeah, no, no. But I looked at it and I, and I just went, this is just an unbelievable piece of work. This is actually a full history of Australia through the wine, through a wine glass and a wine bottle. Like there's a whole bunch of things in there that we'll, we'll, we'll put on the next podcast. I'll yeah. tell you some of the good stuff in about a year's time. But essentially, and I just was like, we need to- Like we, juicy juice. Death, marriages, affairs, homicides. Better, better, better. Um, So bush rangers, all kinds of cool stuff. So, but the thing about it was, it was just such a, Andrew is a, he's a way better writer than I am. So it's just a beautiful piece of work. And it's, and it's historic and it's rich and it's fantastic. And, and he's like, no one wants it, Angus. And I just said, well, you and I, let's just do this. Let's just publish. Let's just take on publishing the greatest Australian wine book for generations. Like we're in, bitches. And do it we're ourselves. Yeah, yeah, basically. I basically, I mean, you know, I probably probably should have thought about it a little bit, a little bit more before I made the decision. It was Were you right, drinking? But, um, no, no, no. no oh, I, just, I just read it and I just went, I, I almost didn't have an option. I literally just went, I see that this will be tough. And he'd spoken to publishers and they said, oh, can we cut out all the, can we have no pictures? You can't tell a wine history without pictures. Can we, can we halve the, can we cut the half, cut the content in half, make it 600 pages or 1200 pages? And I'm just like, no, this is like, this is the definitive Australian history. So we, so I hatched a business plan. Personally, I put the numbers together and it's a combination of the 18th century and the 21st century. So the 18th century is the kings and queens and the wealthy people often would would be benefactors. Patrons. Correct. Yeah. So we have, an, we have, Andrew and I have raised almost 400 grand AUD. So it's like 20 bucks US. But I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. But literally we've raised 400 grand to get this off the, off the ground, largely due to Andrew's amazing reputation. Um, and we are in the editing stage and we are sourcing images and I've got winery sending in pictures from the early 1800s Amazing. and we've it's it's a collaborative effort it's a, it's actually a not-for-profit effort Andrew is donating the content to what we think will be a kind of a foundation that will live on the Wow. the royalties for it but it's an un it's seriously is you know think of jasper morris as like mm-hmm. you know burgundy tome which is an unbelievable it's two add two of those together so we're talking three volumes 1200 pages fully illustrated include including in that is a canon of australian wine so it's it's literally like a it's all the kind of i guess waypoints in the australian wine trade starting with the 1792 Rose Hill, which is Parramatta, which is like Western Sydney. Shiraz, which was like the first farm in Sydney. 
kind of thing. Oh. So, so these are not all wines he's tasted. He's not quite that old, but um, yeah. but these are but these are these are wines that there are many wines he's had experiences of. But there's a lot of wines also which are historic wines, and and look, we plan on okay. There's going to be the the massive tome, which will be for Christmas next year, and then probably the year after that we'll do a concise one, mm. because not everyone wants to spend two hundred bucks on Australian wine book, which is fine. But then I think we will. I think this is this is something I would I hope that we get up a tour of Andrew going around the world doing this. I already have a, a potential order from La Place de Bordeaux as well. Yeah, yeah it's so funny because I was thinking of, of all the people, all of our fringe tones. You know, we've got our Jancis tones, we've got our fringe tones, and they're all fabulous. So I, I suppose it's quite lovely to think that we've got this for Australia. So now what I we just need is Who's going to do this for New Zealand? Come on. Well, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Janie Skilt's pretty good. Janie Ooh. Skilton, Master of Wine. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bob, Bob, obviously, as well. You know, yeah, I think, yeah. I think, um, I, I look, I would like to think that there have been so many amazing, uh, you know, and I'm sure you at the same time, we've read some amazing books that have documented mm. the history and the current state of play of the great wine regions of the world. You know, if it's Anthony Hansen, Burgundy, if it's Livingston, Lermoth, Rhone, you know, absolutely Jane stuff, Jane in Bordeaux. Um, there's just so many, you know, um, uh, uh, Nick Belfrage, you know, those beautiful books, that whole series. Yeah. There have been so many fantastic books, but they've been, you know, they've been quite traditional kind of wine texts. Yeah. Whereas Andrew is literally like, like there are dead people in this book. There are yeah, there are, there are the country, absolutely through, through the, the, the the lens of the wine industry. There are there are there are murders. There is intrigue. There is embarrassment. There is all of those things in this book. It's the Miss Fisher of wine. <laughs> it is, but it's but you know we are very. It's not, you know. We want to tell the whole story. I think to there's no use having a some you know to to you know, wipe clean the slate and pretend it was all happy families doing this. Like this was a country that was built on convicts. Right. This was a built a country built on convicts. It was built on, you know, displacement of Aborigines, you know, which is which is an incredibly important issue in modern Australia and, and you know, and righting those wrongs. You know, it's a but it also it's a you know, Australia wasn't a wine country, really. You know, we had things like Hill of Grace and we had some amazing vineyards. We had some great stuff. But really, do you know what made Australia a wine country? The end of the Second World War. Because we got an influx of Italians and Greeks. Melbourne is still the second biggest Greek city in the world. So we got an influx of Mediterranean immigrants. Australians were drinking beer till the till the 80s to be honest in extraordinarily quantities very proud to say um but really it was that mediterranean influence that came in the 40s and 50s the complete that started the change that got people planting grapes there were people before that de Bortley's were there before that stuff like that but really the big change was actually immigration the big change to australia was new australians coming in bringing their beautiful historic world of wine john casella is a perfect example of that Putting it in the ground. The Henschkes are an example of that, but that's in the 1850s, the, you know, the German history. But really, our wine industry is based on immigrants coming to this country and wanting to replicate what they had. So is every wine industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I it's know. true. I know. It's true. I know. You look at the California, it's all yeah, just yeah, a yeah. bunch of Italian families. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, no, no. And thank, you know, I just thank God they did, to be honest. Cheers. Cheers to, to that. To our wine, to that. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we go. Yep. Yeah.
Um, thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed getting to sit down with you. It's been lovely being here at this conference with you. So for everyone who's listening, how can they find all the wonderful things that you're doing? Look, that you can. there's lots of different stuff. Uh, the book, let's start with mm. AustralianArc.com. You can sign up to just the newsletter and we'll just let you know what's what's going on there. Um, it, and, and you can sign up and just... Just keep in touch with, and we will keep in touch with you and just tell you about it. And we'll probably send every month, we'll just send a, hist- a wine update. history email yeah. kind of thing. So there's that. Um, Andrew Kyden also have the Vintage Journal mm. as well. So that's just Andrew's little special place where he talks about, you know, great wine. Um, we have an app, Vintage Journal, which Android Android and Apple. So we have Vintage Journal is is our app. Um, we have uh, WinePilot, WinePilot.com, which is which is that that kind of collaborative thing I talked about. It's like a collective of interesting wineries. I'm in there, but I'm not trying to be the big guy at the front. I'm not trying to be the general. I'm just I'm just one of a team of of interesting players from all around Australia and some New Zealanders. And then of course we have we have Venice with Antonio Galloni, and you know I'm looking forward to writing some meaty, big, thick. Are you coming to wine to wine? What's wine to wine? Oh my God! You've just got me outcast. Wine to wine um, is. Oh, I'm gonna. I'm probably not gonna pitch this properly. Wine to wine is my very favorite. No lie, I'm not just saying that because this is part of the wine to wine ecosystem. One of my very favorite wine conferences every okay. single year. Where Verona, is it? Verona, November. Fabulous event. It's all wine business. It's run by. We're Steve talking like Pierre. four, four or five weeks time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, maybe not this year. Yeah, probably not this year. Next but, but year, you and we'll Andrew bring the Bible. What, with, no, with don't the call it. Don't call it. Don't call that. It's, What's that? We'd, I'll just call it the Australian Ark. The Ark. Yeah, yeah. I also yeah, 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 yeah. Next yeah, year yeah. you can come with the book. Um, wonderful. It would Thank be you. look. It's such a pleasure to meet a kindred spirit and yeah. and two you know we're fighting that digital cause Honestly, in this, we're just gonna keep fighting in this industry of Amish thank you you know thank you very much and that's a wrap thank you for listening and a great big thank you to Angus for joining me live drinking some wine and talking Australia and conferences today the Italian wine podcast is among the leading wine podcast in the world and the only one with daily episodes tune in each day and discover all our different shows Be sure to join us next Sunday for another look at the world of wine marketing. We hope you enjoyed today's episode brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th, 2022 in Verona, Italy. Remember, tickets are on sale now. So for more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.